All right, we are concluding our journey in the book of Habakkuk this morning. For those of you who downloaded the devotional, you may say, wait a minute now, I thought we were going to do Galatians 3 in a couple of weeks. Well, we're not, and let me tell you why. Um, next week, and this, you need to be praying for me, I'm actually going to be leading a middle school youth retreat in South Carolina. Now, maybe you think, no, 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 we should be praying for them, not you. Well, that's true, too. Pray for both while you're at it. Um, it's something that I've done for a number of years for a friend of mine who I met in seminary. Uh, didn't actually meet him in seminary. I met him at church, and then we went to seminary together. And it has always been a blessing to me. It's always been a tremendously humbling time to try to communicate the gospel at the middle school level. And so um, the Lord has always been gracious. I suspect he will be so again. So be praying for us both in that. Uh, so next week, you'll get the opportunity to hear from um, a young man named Sam Hogan, who just graduated from RTS, and he is licensed in the Central Georgia Presbytery. I've heard him preach, and he's a great friend of mine. Uh, Jonathan Stuckert also thinks the world of him. So he will preach from Joshua 1 next week for you all. And then the following week, we have the privilege of hearing from a, um, uh, an Indian pastor, he's a national, who will be coming through town with Jim Whittle. And you guys may remember Jim Whittle. And so Jim will be with him. And so we get the chance to hear about the ministry that he's doing um, and uh, he will preach for us as well. So make sure you're here. What a tremendous opportunity to hear from some other men who love Jesus. And I especially want to make sure that you're here to hear from Vijay, um, who will be coming all the way from India to share with us on the 14th. The following week on the 21st, we will start um, the Lord's Prayer. Um, and so we'll, we'll take the summer to move through the Lord's Prayer line by line. We'll start with the first portion and walk through. Uh, be looking for a devotional that you can use for you and for your family. That will be up on the website probably early the following week. Not next week, but the following. And so I do want to encourage you to use this for your family devotion because... Teaching our kids, learning ourselves how to better pray makes all the difference in the world. I mean, think about it, and I've said this here before. When the disciples could have asked Jesus to teach them anything, after all they had seen, what did they want to know? Lord, teach us how to pray. And so they saw something that we ought to probably pay attention to. And so we want to take time to do that over the summer. Um, I don't know why my microphone's making that weird noise. Um, it's, it's something all the time, isn't it? Uh, demons in the architecture, as we like to call it. So uh, we'll get through it. It'll be fine. Um, let's uh, turn to the very end of the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3. We'll look at verses 17 through 19 this morning as we're bringing this to a close. Um, I hope that it has been... a, a um, a transformative journey for you as we've talked about Habakkuk. I've heard from many of you that you've really been struck by the whole issue of how pride is the true antithesis to faith. And I really hope that that has sunk in because I think that one of the most destructive forces in all of Christianity, particularly among Christian leaders, is pride. Pride is so destructive and so deceptive, and, and it just is insatiable, isn't it? Pride is never satisfied. It keeps going on ad infinitum until you're done, until it has cast you aside. And so my hope is that you would, I would, we all would, would be growing in terms of recognizing and seeking and asking the Spirit to show us, Lord, where am I eaten up with pride? 
Where is pride maybe lurking in the darker parts of my heart and soul, and I just haven't paid attention to it, because I want to be righteous and live by faith? My hope is that you would want to see it, it removed from you in the surgery of our great God through the power of Christ as the blood is applied to you through the moving of the Holy Spirit, that you would want it to be removed so that you could live. Right? That's, that's the beautiful thing is that he's offering to us life. And I have never met a prideful person that I thought was more alive than anybody else. In fact, they almost seem to be grasping at death itself. And so I hope that that's been one part of it. I also hope that you have seen that you can ask the Lord our God some pretty difficult questions and that God appreciates Christians that look at the world and say, this isn't right, this doesn't match, and I would like to see it change, right? That, part of our problem is that we don't often ask hard questions because we don't really want to know and we don't want him to ask us to be part of the change, do we? You know, if you go asking questions about water in India, lo and behold, you could find yourself on a plane as if he doesn't have 7,000 more better than you. And so we need to be willing to look at the world and to say, there are things that are off, Lord. How might you use us to be change agents? How might you go about redeeming things in a way that will bring great glory to your name? Remember, what was Habakkuk's greatest concern in his prayer? Himself, right? Lord, I don't care if you kill all the rest of them. Remember, this is what we read last week. I don't care if you kill all of them. Just make sure I'm okay. Isn't that what he prayed? No. Not at all what he prayed. What he said is, Lord, most importantly, may you be glorified and remembered for how good you are. And that would be, think about how that would change us and how we interact with one another. So if, if, if Josh and I have a problem, and before I approach Josh because I'm angry with him about something, that I would say, all right, Lord, how in approaching Josh are you going to be glorified? How might I approach him? And we don't have a beef, by the way. This is not a, I'm not using this time to kind of work something out. This isn't therapeutic. Um, and so I picked him because I know there's nothing, right? Okay, all right, good. All right, so, uh, so, so how would it change things if my first concern was to say, Lord, whatever way I approach Josh, how might you be glorified? How might you be more glorified by the restoration of our friendship and relationship and whatever it is that sits between us? Because remember, what is God doing? He's removing the barriers between us and him and us and each other and us and creation and us and ourselves. And he longs to be glorified by the removal of barriers between us. So what, what would it change if our first move was to say, Lord, how might you be most glorified in whatever I'm about to do instead of lighting the flame of our tongues and setting fire to everything in our path. So Habakkuk teaches us, he teaches us that, that we can pray in the midst of very, very difficult circumstances. And beautifully, as we find ourselves at journey's end with Habakkuk, he's going to give us a psalm in short fashion that's going to teach us a tremendous amount in just a few words. Think about if the book had ended where we ended last week. Let me just read to you where we ended. Verse 16, he says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon, uh, to come upon people who invade us. What if that's just where it ended? Well, that's not a terrible place to end, right? I mean, he is saying, look, I will, I will wait for the invading army. But beautifully, that's not where it ends. 
We're going to read that it ends at a place where Habakkuk actually rejoices and worships, not just is trembling and filled with rottenness. How beautiful is it that the Lord our God is willing to do this for us? Amen? Um, So let me read for you the three verses that comprise a psalm, and then we'll ask some questions and take it apart. Listen to God's word this morning. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. What circumstances normally result in you praising the Lord? Think about that for a second. What normally causes you to pause and give God praise? All of us are different. There are different circumstances. Usually, if we're honest, most of the time it's going to be the good things in life. It's going to be the bonus things. It's going to be the gracious things, right? Rarely are we so sadistic as to suggest that suffering and sorrow and doubt would cause us to praise. And yet, what does the Scripture teach us? What did Habakkuk just teach us? All things should bring praise. Why? Because the Lord is in all things. Because he's sovereign over all things, even the difficult things, even the hard things. And so, while this is not natural to us, and why would it be? Why would praising under difficult circumstances be natural to fallen men and women? (laughs) It wouldn't at all. It's something that we must learn. It's something that we must grow in. It's something that the Spirit must grant to us. And then by contrast, how do you respond in terms of doubt and suffering? Is it praise? Now, don't feel beat up here because you're thinking, man, I don't, I struggle, man. I don't want to admit that. You know, no, we all do. But is, is it that we're to just remain in the struggle? Is that all there is? Or is there the opportunity for maturity and growth in these things? Beautifully, God grants us the opportunity for maturity and growth. And so, as we start out, listen to the words of, again, one of my favorite preachers that I've never heard because he was back in the 1600s, Charles Simeon. Um, He says this, he says, A Christian will be distinguished from others, whatever be his situation in life, But the more and trying and afflictive his condition be, the more will he cause his light to shine before men and demonstrate the excellence of the principles he has embraced. The prophet's resolution and the prospect of the Babylonish invasion and of the calamities consequent upon it affords a just picture of every child of God. For though all do not possess the same attainments, all determine through grace to make God the exclusive object of their joy and triumph. What did Charles just say? Charles just said, listen, when you have situations of sorrow and and brokenness, you have this incredible opportunity to glorify the Lord your God, which is not possible under any other circumstance. Not under any other. 
Um, and so it is critically important that we recognize that even the times of sorrow and brokenness are the place where our Lord can be most glorified, even though we don't want it to come, even though we are weak and we struggle. The Lord knows this. As the psalmist would say, he knows we are but dust. I'm, I'm going to have to pause for just a second. Everybody remain calm. Jay Doig, you need to go check on somebody. All right, I'm sorry about that. Uh, my spirit was very disturbed within me about that. So anyway, um, I'm going to pause and pray for Jay real quick. How's that sound? Father God, I, I pray for Jay um, as he steps out. I pray that you are being gracious and good in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, all right, let's turn back to the text. So the first two verses teach us something very, very important. Listen to what Habakkuk is saying. He's saying, though the fig tree would not blossom, um, though there is no fruit on the vines, there is no produce, and the olive fails, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. What did he just cover? Everything. If you lived in their society, if you've got no fruit, you've got no olives, you've got no olive oil, you've got no herd, you've got no flock, you've got nothing. And what's coming for you? When you have nothing to eat, you have nothing to drink, you have nothing to sustain you, what has surrounded you on all sides? Death. And he knows that that's what's coming. And so notice that it's not just about what the Babylonians are going to do to them. It's also the blessing that they have been cut off from by the Lord God himself. So they are surrounded on every side by death. Now notice how he responds. And yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even though everything that I have access to that could sustain me, even though we are surrounded on all sides by death, I will rejoice in the Lord. The God of my salvation, I will take joy in. That's a pretty convicting thing to hear because I don't know that I do well when things are cut off from me. I mean... Just this morning, I got up, and there were no hazelnut K-cups. <laughs> and then our power went out, and I thought we were through. <laughs> it's not even close. Not even close. But all that is true, by the way. But that's nothing, right? But, but how often do even the little things send us into some sort of tailspin? Because we are expectant children who think that all these things ought to be available to us. And yet Habakkuk says that even the most basic of necessities, if all of them are gone, Lord, yet I will rejoice in you because of my salvation. Now that's the right ordering of things, isn't it? Isn't that kind of where we struggle is that, and then this is me now, I'm, I'm talking to me, that, that we don't recognize the magnitude of our salvation, do we? We think it was a foregone conclusion, something that we were owed anyway. Because I'm pretty special. I don't know if you've met me. Betsy, you're a counselor for crying out loud. Maybe you, ha you have met me. Okay, that's fair. She's right. That's the right response. The Lord, the Lord did not save me because there was anything special about me. In fact, if you'd have known me before, and maybe even if you know me now, you would recognize that the Lord could have done better. He really could. Um, but 
He is so gracious and loving that he would reach into the deepest darkness and pull for himself an instrument of glory, an ambassador for reconciliation, something that he could use to glorify himself, though I feel like I fail him most minutes of hours of days. I just don't think that we understand the gravity of the situation. We think that we're owed something. Habakkuk clearly recognizes he's not owed anything. He's recognizing that even if I were to lose everything, Lord, you would still be my all in all. Your redeeming of me is redemption enough, is more than enough. I can sit and wait for the invaders to come because they can't take from me what you've given me. That's crucial, isn't it? Doesn't that change how we should live? Doesn't that, make us, doesn't that make us free in Christ? Think about how that begins to affect things. I was just talking to a friend of mine who's a, um, he's a church planter, and, and he was asking me, he said, you know, I need to raise up some leaders, and, and uh, what would you recommend? Where would you recommend we start? There's so much that we need to know and learn and do. And I said, well, the longer I go, the more I recognize that our problem is not at all pragmatic. Like, you've heard me talk about being missional a whole bunch, and, and there's a lot of pragmatism that goes with missionality, right? Well, here's the problem. Not one of you, myself included, is going to be missional until you first and foremost understand that you are founded upon the rock, that you are free in Christ because it's just too hard otherwise. Have you guys ever dealt with sinners? Any parents in here? We were just talking last night with some friends about just how hard it is to reach their neighbors because they don't need, their neighbors are affluent and they don't need anything. There's no entry point. And so in order for them to ever reach their neighbors, they're going to have to take a five, six, seven, eight, ten-year approach. Who's willing to do that? Hopefully we are. But you won't do it unless you know that you're free in Christ. You will not endure their snarky comments about you being the goody two-shoes at the pool. You won't endure them not welcoming you into their party because they know you're going to be a killjoy because you're not going to drink Jaeger with everybody else who's 40 and up, which is just odd to me, by the way. <clears throat> but it's, it's, it's unless you know you're free in Christ, the pragmatic is meaningless. Unless you, you understand the gravity of what God has done for you and you can take joy in your salvation, you will not endure the hurt that will come from being missional. You won't. I won't. None of us will. And so I told him, I said, the most important thing I think that you could help your people to understand, and I'm saying this to you, the most important thing that I could help you to understand is who you are in Christ. That you are redeemed and beloved of God and that he has redeemed you for all of eternity and that will never change. That cannot be taken from you no matter how many times you fail, somebody fails around you or somebody fails you. It doesn't change. And that's beautiful. And until you can say in some measure with Habakkuk, if everything were to be taken away, I still have you, Lord. There's no way you'll ever be missional. There's no way you'll ever pray like you ought to. There's no way you can love God or your neighbor like you ought to. That's what I loved about the fact that earlier in his prayer, he quoted from Genesis 3 and said, Lord, you're the one who rises and does this. And he's completing that thought here. Listen at what F.F. Bruce, who's a New Testament scholar, says about this passage. He says, it is right 
and proper to voice appreciation of God's goodness when he bestows all that is necessary for life and health and prosperity. But when these things are lacking, to rejoice in God for his own sake is evidence of pure faith. The vision of God has had its effect on the prophet, and now, with visible means of support, he receives strength from the God in whom he trusts. How you know that the just are living by faith is when their cup gets tipped, and you can see the contents inside. So, let me ask you, and this is not an easy question, what is required for you to be content? Now, this is a crucial question that you, I, I really want to challenge you to consider this Lord's Day. It's not one you can answer here in short fashion. It's something that you will need to pray about. It's something that you'll need to let kind of seep down into you so you can finally at last be honest. But you must, it, it's a great question, isn't it? What is required for you to be content? And then ask the Spirit to surgically remove all that is unbiblical so that you could remain firm on the foundation of Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone. As he closes this psalm out, he says, God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me to tread on my high places. Habakkuk says that his strength doesn't come from the sustenance that he will lose. It doesn't come from anything but his salvation in the Lord. He is confessing that it is God alone who sustains him and nothing more. Do we have the courage to, to, to say that the Lord alone is our strength? Or do we try to, in our own strength, do a variety of things? Again, I argue, unless you know the Lord is your strength, you being missional will fail at some point in time. You can read all the pragmatic ideas till the cows come home, but you will not abide and suffer with like what is required to see people's lives changed. We won't do it. He even says that it is the Lord God who makes his feet like that of the deers. And what he means is that the Lord gives him the ability to tread on difficult terrain, that he would not slip, that he would not falter under difficult circumstances. What he's saying is the Lord holds him fast in these moments of difficulty. And he goes on to say that he makes my, me to tread on the high places. What he's saying is the Lord makes me more than a conqueror. He makes me victorious. Because it is not about what this passing world has to call victory or sustenance or worth. It is what God declares worthy, which is me, which makes me more than a conqueror in all things. Amen? How many of you would, at times, you just feel defeated? Maybe even today you've come in here and you're feeling more beat up than lifted up. You're stumbling in. You don't necessarily feel like you're treading on any high place. You feel like you're crawling through the low place. And so my prayer is that this would be something that we could utter in time. And not all of us are going to be able to say it at the same time, right? Remember, sanctification is a process, isn't it? Sometimes it is a flat crawl. And we have a hard time with that. That's a hard thing for us, isn't it? Because we, we live in a society where everything is now, right? We, we don't want to wait for anything. I love watching people come into the Starbucks on Cherokee. It's, it, the, it's an interesting crowd of people. They're, it's different than the other Starbucks that I'm in because they, it, it's, they, there's always a line. And, and, and it's people who come in all the time. And the line can be the same, but from day to day, they can't tolerate it. 
they'll come in and see like, and they'll leave, and then they'll come back. Like, they've wasted more time leaving and, like, deciding and coming back. And it's just, we, we, just, we just don't, we, we have such, such a low tolerance and such a low patience. We just, we, just, we, we don't want to wait for anything. We don't, we don't want to stick with anything. We want fast results. We want things to happen quickly. We do not take a long view, right? We just don't. We struggle. And so here Habakkuk is saying that these, these things that the Lord has granted in and through our salvation, grant us the ability to sustain and abide and glorify him in all that we do. Listen to what O. Palmer Robertson says to summarize the book of Habakkuk. He says, the transition from the complaining prophet to the rejoicing prophet surely must be seen as a work of God's sovereign grace. Nothing else could explain how a person could be happy and contented in the face of calamities. Habakkuk had to undergo. May the Lord himself continue to provide the grace of life to people of this generation by the faith that justifies. That's what I pray for us. I pray for us as a church that we would be known at Christ's community as, as a people who are being provided for in the grace of the Lord our God. And that we are willing to sustain and abide and remain. And that we would be able to celebrate and rejoice even under, the, under difficult circumstances. That we could say the Lord is our strength. That we rejoice in our salvation. Amen? That that's what we would be known for. Not known for pride or thinking that we're better than some other church. Or thinking that we're doing it more right than some other church. One of the things that I, I like to do, and this is not to make me sound more spiritual, by the way, because I fail more, more times than I get it right. But on the way in, I, I will usually pray for every church I pass. I don't care what kind of church it is. I don't care what I think about their doctrine or theology. Um, I, I, don't, I don't care. But what I pray on the way in is, Lord, I pray that you would fill that man with your spirit and he would preach the gospel pure and that it would pierce people this morning. I don't care what he's got wrong in the past. Let him get it right this morning. And the same for me, your servant. May the gospel pierce us in a way that moves us to recognize the foundation on which we stand. So, the three things that we can learn from this psalm is number one, that we should derive our contentment and our joy from salvation in God alone. We, we've got to understand the gravity of our salvation. We must spend more time considering what the Lord God has done for us and what that means. I just think we move on from it too quickly. I think we think that there's some higher truth or better, uh, better thing to understand than just that. No, there's not. There really isn't. And everything else you could learn, hopefully, is just helping you to better understand that reality. Amen? Everything that we should learn, every Bible study, everything that we do should at last make us more joyous for the God who has saved us. Not wicked pragmaticians who are only going to fail because we don't have the endurance. Second thing is that God should be the primary source of our strength in this fallen world. There's a lot of things that we turn to, right? There's a lot of things that we turn to to try to find some sort of solace. Whether it be good things, like making money, or whether it be bad things, 
like substances and pornography and any number of things that only drag us deeper into the darkness and actually do not in any way, shape, or form set us free. Let our strength be in God alone, the Lord who has saved and redeemed us. And the third thing is that we, in God, through Christ, are more than conquerors. We have overcome death and sin and the wrath of God in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We have been delivered from the single greatest judgment of all. So the Babylonians mean nothing to Habakkuk. Their judgment will be but for a moment and then it will be gone. And the Lord will preserve him even in the midst of that. So as we close out the sermon and we'll be transitioning into communion, I want to read Romans 8, 35 through 39. So if you would, give your attention again to the word of the Lord. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen that that is true. And in fact, one of the beauties of the table of the Lord is that it reminds us again and again of that exact reality, doesn't it? That the broken body and shed blood of Christ continues to nourish our faith. For those of you who may not have been with us before, we don't see this as just a pure memorial. This isn't just something that we're doing just as, a, as, as some repetitive act that we hope God notices. No, this is a gift, a sacrament from the Lord who says, do this in remembrance of me and do it until I come again. Well, he hasn't come again, and so we keep doing it. And we recognize also that there's nothing magical that happens to these elements they don't turn into the actual body and blood of Christ as some of our brothers and sisters believe. It is, it is still bread and juice. But what it does do is in the power of the Spirit bring us before the throne of grace and build up our faith and nourish us. And it, and it, and it gives us the reminder that we need in order to do the things that God has called us to do. See, this is part of the remembering that helps us to actually be missional. Amen? And so my hope is that you will have prepared for this table, that you will not in any way, shape, or form take it lightly. I don't want to scare you, but what I do want to say is, as, as you do have time, you should consider yourself and ask, first and foremost, am I a Christian? It's not something to be taken lightly. It's, it's a great question. It's something that we should all at times probably ask of ourselves, not in a neurotic, navel-gazing way, but in a true, deep way. Do I really understand the depth of the gospel? Because if you're not a believer, this is not going to feed you at all. There ain't enough here, even if I let you eat the whole plate, that would sustain you. But let it pass you by, knowing that in God's grace, hopefully it'll come again and there'll be a day when you can take also, um, if you are currently under church discipline at any church, I don't care what kind of church it is, I don't care if you agree with it. 
If you're under church discipline by those leaders, you cannot take of this table, you should not take of this table until you have talked to us, the elders, to figure out what you need to do to be reconciled. Now, why is that? Well, it's really important that we take of the table in unity and be able to do so with a clean conscience. In the same vein, if you have unforgiveness towards someone else, I'm not talking about conflict. I'm not just talking about if they're unwilling to meet with you. I'm talking about if you and your heart think that someone else made in the image of God is unworthy of forgiveness, you should not take at this table because that's for you to forget who you are and who you were before God, before Jesus redeemed you and the darkness that lurks in your heart. So you should not take at this table if you harbor unforgiveness. And that's not, again, let me, let me make something really clear here. You may be wrestling with someone else in terms of a relationship. You may be working toward reconciliation. You need this. As a Christian, if you're going to pursue reconciliation of any kind, now reconciliation doesn't mean that everything's like it used to be, but at least there's forgiveness and there is no more enmity between the two of you than you need everything this table offers to you. And if you have any questions about that, please come and talk to me. Don't be confused. I want you to take because we need it. Amen? So if you're a professing believer and you're in good standing with a local church and you don't harbor unforgiveness in your heart, we have the great privilege to partake of the Lord's table this day. As a church who recognizes its frailty again and again and again. And so what a beautiful thing that we get to, um, again, recognize that Christ, on the night that he, um, just before he was crucified, he took bread and he put it before the disciples and he said, listen, this is the last time I'll be with you in the Passover, but it's the first Lord's Supper and there'll be many to come essentially. But I want you to know this, my body, it is broken for you. It is broken for you because I want you to be free of the shame and the guilt and my body will be broken in exhausting the wrath of God on behalf of your sin, past, present, and future. That's almost incomprehensible to us, isn't it? That Christ would do something of that magnitude and yet he did. So as you take today, as you take of the body, the thing that I would say to you is consider how the removal of God's wrath has been so beautiful and freeing to you.